Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I am your host, Brad Soboleski. And with the warm weather months upon us here in the Northern Hemisphere, I wanted to talk about heat illnesses. Heat illnesses are defined by disruption in the regulation of body temperature. In fever, an individual's thermoregulation is intact. In pathologic heat illness, it is not. I won't talk about molecules beyond that. Essentially, heat illness is because you get too much warm temperature from the environment. Your body metabolism exceeds your ability to reduce heat, you know, whether through sweating with evaporation, convection, or other thermo or vasoregulatory physiology. And it encompasses a spectrum of conditions from heat cramps all the way up to heat exhaustion and the life-threatening heat stroke. So in the normal state, the hypothalamus regulates body temperature between about 36 and 37.5 degrees centigrade, uh, despite the ambient temperature in the room. Fever is the most common condition with hyperthermia in the emergency department. That's no surprise. This generally leads to compensatory increased metabolic activity and often shivering. So the body does what it's supposed to do in response to the fever. The hyperthermia of heat illness is due to an imbalance of absorption of heat from the environment that exceeds our ability to dissipate it. So the majority of heat transfer in humans is due to radiation. That's like if you're laying under a blanket next to somebody and they're just giving off heat, that's radiation that's being trapped under the blanket. Increased blood flow to the skin uh, is one main way that we deal with heat. But in heat illnesses, this can be counterproductive and dysregulated, diverting blood flow away from central organs that want to see it. Sweating or evaporation is the most important way that we dissipate heat. So tight clothing, high humidity, these are two things that can impair evaporative losses. We also like learn to cool off. When you're hot, you go somewhere that's not hot to cool off. Infants and small children don't know how to find shade or can't find shade due to their developmental age. This is especially pertinent when you have the infant who's been locked in a parked car. Furthermore, children have a higher metabolic rate and a greater surface area to mass ratio. So children will increase their heart rate, but their ability to increase cardiac output is not as robust, especially in kids under five years, than adults. Uh, kids can also alter their peripheral blood flow to a greater degree than adults. Think the wide variance in capillary refill in dehydrated kids. So couple that decrease in stroke volume that comes with a greater heart rate and more of the blood being diverted to the skin than an adult proportionally and you can see why children can be more susceptible to problems like syncope or other heat related illnesses. Finally, kids just make less sweat. They got smaller sweat glands and they have less sensitive production in response to heat. Now overall this is a big issue and uh, you'll often see on the news where there was a heat related death of a young infant there appears to be an increase in pediatric related heat death. At least the study from the last decade um, indicated that you have about 3,400 heat deaths a year, and admittedly not all of those are children. At-risk groups, athletes in full gear, day with high humidity, babies in locked cars, and children with developmental delay. Let's go ahead and talk about some specific heat related illnesses. The first one that you see is known as heat rash or prickly heat. This is a really common rash seen in little children. It occurs on the face, the trunk, and the upper neck. And generally, when you have obstructed sweat ducts, you get a bumpy, 
red, slightly raised rash. Parents are often worried that this is an infection or an allergic reaction, but if the history suggests that they rot in the heat, you have made the diagnosis. Loose clothes and avoiding oily skin emollients can help reduce the significance or the development of prickly heat. Heat edema is less commonly seen in children, and this is where the lower extremities, feet, or other gravity-dependent portions of the body swell. This is due to vasodilation and venous stasis. It's self-limited, it can last for a few days, limb elevation and compressive stockings can help, and as really as long as the patient doesn't have any signs of heart failure, you don't gotta worry about it. Heat syncope is something that we do see relatively common in the pediatric emergency department, and it's generally due to vasovagal mediated mechanisms. The treatment for most patients who have a normal cardiac and neurologic exam is to give them oral fluids and move them to a cool location. Patients who cannot stand up on their own or are supremely symptomatic or have very abnormal vital signs should be treated with intravenous fluids. If you're concerned for a cardiac cause, perhaps it's exertional, get an EKG. And remember that four out of 10 patients that faint can have convulsions of some sort, so you're gonna to have to sort out the question as to whether or not the patient had a seizure as well. Most of us have also experienced heat cramps, which are muscle spasms after exertion. It's thought to be due to electrolyte depletion, but I don't think many of you have had a cramp while exercising in the heat and then rapidly checked your sodium potassium, or chloride. This is a little more likely if you're replacing your sweat losses with free water, and these cramps can be pretty intense and debilitating in last seconds to a few minutes. Most patients respond well to oral treatment. So that's the simple ones. You've likely seen those even before you went into the field of medicine. Now let's talk about more moderate and severe heat illnesses, starting with heat exhaustion. So Heat exhaustion has systemic symptoms, which helps differentiate it from heat cramps in others. You can get general irritability, fatigue, weakness, lightheadedness, headache, increased thirst, nausea, vomiting, muscle cramps. These are all common symptoms. Patients may have maltachycardia, orthostasis, and they can be tachypnic. Sweating is typically preserved. Remember that. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Other physical findings include dry mucous membranes, flushed skin, and perhaps even muscle tenderness. Temp is generally in the normal range, but can be up to 39.9 degrees centigrade. And remember, if you think a patient's really hot, peripheral measurements can be inaccurate, so you want to get a cord temperature, and on the obtunded patient, again, we'll come back to that later, a rectal temp or an esophageal probe is the most valuable. So patients that have heat exhaustion can either be salt depleted or water depleted. So if they are very symptomatic or you think they need IV fluids, well, get a panel of electrolytes. Um, other labs that can be seen are elevated hematocrit, maybe due to hemoconcentration, elevated BUN, um, and then elevations of tra uh, transaminases, creatinine, and CK, or especially the acidotic patient, that should alert you to the possibility of heat stroke because those abnormalities do not occur in heat exhaustion alone. The treatment at first is to get the patient to a cool shaded environment and remove clothing as possible. If you're working in a hospital, hopefully that's happened uh, before they arrive to you. Give them oral fluids. Note that antipyretics for the patient that has a temperature that crosses that fever threshold are not helpful. Give oral fluids unless the patient has very abnormal vital signs or they're vomiting or they're moderately dehydrated. Again, send a panel for electrolytes, like a renal panel or basic metabolic panel, before giving fluids if possible. The mild temperature of elevation in heat exhaustion is not cytotoxic. 
So patients who are physiologically normal with a normal temperature who have repleted their fluid losses and electrolytes can be discharged home. This is in contrast to severe heat illness. Unfortunately, it's more rare, but can be deadly. And this is heat stroke. The two big definitions that define heat stroke are core temperature greater than 40 and central nervous system dysfunction. Heat stroke is a multi-system disease. I will say it again for emphasis. Heat stroke is a multi-system disease. So you can have renal failure, neurologic injury, pulmonary edema, and DIC, among other bad outcomes. Sweating is often absent, but don't use that to diagnose heat stroke. At-risk kids are those that have already had a febrile illness or those trapped in cars and can't get out. Central nervous system symptoms of heat stroke are broad and include things like seizures, delirium, hallucinations, ataxia. Again, I mentioned that there may or may not be sweating, but patients often have hot, dry skin. Patients can have headache, nausea, and vomiting and diarrhea, tachycardia, syncope, hyperventilation. Um, labs are often grossly abnormal. You can have low or high sodium, low potassium, low glucose, elevated BUN and creatinine. Patients with severe heat stroke can go into DIC. You'll have elevated PT, PTT, and INR. It's more common in the patient that has gotten exertional heat stroke. CK is elevated, and you can see myoglobinuria. AST and ALT elevations indicate liver injury. And the white count? Well, sometimes that's elevated too, and that's thought to be due to the stress response. So the treatment of heat stroke, again, these very, very sick patients, starts obviously with the ABCs. Consider avoiding succinylcholine if you're going to intubate via RSI. You also want to get a very accurate measurement of the patient's vitals, especially their temperature. So a rectal temperature probe or an esophageal temperature probe can be valuable. Now the literature seems to be at a bit of an impasse when it comes to cooled IV fluids. So they may help or they may not if you have them available. But certainly resuscitate with either normal saline or lactated ringers. Watch your fluids closely because you can put a patient into pulmonary edema if you're a little too aggressive. Cooling techniques start with removing clothes and moving patients out of the heat, changing the ambient temperature of the room. You can mist them with ice water and a fan. Put ice packs near the body parts under which major vessels course. So this is the neck, axilla, and groin. Cool water immersion is not widely available and it takes close monitoring, especially limiting electrical monitoring, but it may be a great option if you have it at your hospital. Patients that are shivering excessively or seizing will benefit from benzodiazepines like Ativan. This can help stop the shaking and reduce metabolic stresses on the body. Patients with rhabdomyolysis will benefit from IV fluid resuscitation along with sodium bicarbonate. One recipe are three ampules of 50 mLs of 8.4% bicarbonate in one liter of 5% D5 water at 250 mLs per hour. And as with heat exhaustion, antipyretics are not effective in reducing the core body temperature and heat stroke. And remember, the goal is not to get the patient down to a normal temperature. Aim for under 39 degrees centigrade. Then most patients' homeostatic mechanisms be back online. Well, that's it for this edition of PEM Currents focusing on heat illness. Again, my name is Brad Soboleski. I am the author of PEM Blog, a red hot site for pediatric emergency medicine education. 
You can also follow me on Twitter and continue the conversation online. Leave me a review on iTunes, and most of all, stay cool. See you next time.